All right. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 7? Tonight we will be studying or beginning to study chapter 7, which along with the rest of the book, 7 to 12, uh, many have called the little revelation of the Bible. So uh, uh, we'll be jumping back and forth a lot uh, as we get into these uh, last six chapters. But focusing tonight on chapter 7, I like what David Jeremiah said to kind of begin things. He said, I am told that among the scribes who copied the Old Testament, the seventh chapter of Daniel was considered the greatest chapter in the scriptures. This is about pure future prophecy, the record of God's incredible and unchanging plan for the nations. All of our modern futurists who sit in the think tanks of the nations can project their warnings about holes in the ozone, depletion of the natural resources, a misuse of nuclear capabilities, but they are unable to give us a clue to the ultimate future of mankind. Daniel does. Anyone who does not believe in a supernatural Bible has a tremendous problem with the truth of this chapter, end quote. And liberals, liberal theologians are all over this chapter to discredit it, tear it apart, try to make it say what it's not saying because they don't want to just flat out admit it speaks of future events. They don't believe in prophecy, liberal theologians. And, uh, but we're going to see tonight, this is one of the purest chapters in the Bible when it comes to prophecy. Now, before we start looking at chapter 7, you need to understand that the first six chapters of the book of Daniel are historical and chronological. Starting with chapter 7 and running through the end of the book, we move from the historical to the prophetical portion of the book of Daniel. Now, with chapter 2 notwithstanding, of course, chapter 2 in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which we're going to talk about tonight quite a bit, um, give us a look into the future, obviously. But um, the dreams and visions recorded in chapters 7 through 12 all take place during the 23 years between the end of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5, and then through the end of chapter 6. So these chapters kind of go back. They're at the end of the book, but really they fit into the chronological portion. As I said, all of them come out of the uh, 23 years between the end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5, then up through the end of chapter 6. In fact, we said a few weeks ago that during those 23 years between chapters 4 and 5, Daniel's chapters 7 and 8 took place. They fit into the, that time frame. Now, please put your thinking caps on, okay, because I, I'm going to try to speak as clearly as I can. But some of this, you have to kind of just really think it through, okay? As we study through this chapter, we're going to see that the dream that Daniel had, which is recorded in chapter 7, is very similar to the dream Nebuchadnezzar had as recorded in chapter 2, in that the interpretations of both are almost identical, even if the dreams themselves are not. And that's the big thing. Let me run through these with you to give you a little kind of a context. Both dreams present four symbols. Four metals in one polymetallic image in chapter 2, and then four ferocious animals in chapter 7 that represent the world-governing empire starting with Babylon and ending with the Roman Empire. Both dreams show a decline of the first four kingdoms as they progressively grow more and more inferior to the kingdom in glory before it, 
at the same time increasing in strength. So each of these kingdoms uh, go from most glorious to least glorious, but while they're going from glorious to least glorious, they're increasing in strength. And so we have in chapter 2, the gold goes to the iron. Gold is, of course, much more precious, iron a lot stronger. And then in chapter 7, we see it go from the lion to an exceedingly dreadful, terrifying beast in chapter 7. Both dreams show a duality in the second kingdom. In other words, it consists of two parts. Uh, number four, both dreams have the fourth kingdom connected to the fifth world governing empire under the Antichrist. And so you have the legs of iron and then the toes made up of iron and clay in chapter two and the horns that extend from the fourth beast in chapter seven. In both dreams, there is a tenfold division of the fifth kingdom, the ten toes in chapter two and the ten horns in chapter 7. This represents, guys, the fact that the Antichrist, king, Antichrist kingdom will be a confederacy of ten nations or maybe ten regions. All right. And then finally, in both dreams, there will be a final kingdom that replaces or destroys the previous kingdoms. This will be a worldwide kingdom that will never end, the kingdom of the Messiah. These two dreams are essentially the same incorporating different symbols to communicate the same basic message. The main difference between them is that in chapter 2, the kingdoms of this earth are seen from man's perspective. There's a series of precious metals, actually starting with gold, which is precious, and then working its way down to iron, which is not precious, but as I said, uh, very strong. And so you have the, a declining from glory, but in increasing in strength. Whereas in chapter 7, so chapter 2 seen kingdoms of the earth seen it through the eyes of man, whereas in chapter 7 they are seen through the eyes of God as a series of vicious animals devouring one another. The only real and substantial difference between the two dreams is that chapter 7 introduces the little horn. The little horn. He is the key personage of the fifth kingdom, which is again is a confederacy of ten nations or regions, over which he will rise to power, but listen, not by force. The Antichrist will not rise to power by force. And of course, that's who we're talking about. The little horn uh, is the Antichrist, as we know him. But uh, he's uh, going to rise to power uh, over the fifth kingdom, which is a worldwide empire. Uh, but not by force. He's going to be given power by the people of this world. I believe something pretty catastrophic or cataclysmic has to happen for the whole world to want to immediately federate under one, a one world government. We don't know what that is. It could be a number of things. It could be um, some kind of a worldwide plague. It could be uh, a limited nuclear exchange. It could be a lot of things that, that so um, strike terror into the hearts of people that if we don't do something to come together, we're going to kill each other. We're going to wipe out the entire planet. And so something, can, it might be a worldwide banking collapse, plunging you know, the world into uh, a great, great depression. We don't know. But uh, something that's going to cause the world to want this guy, he's going to be have supernatural charisma, wisdom, and even supernatural powers, 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us. And so the world is going to thrust him into power. And uh, they're going to see him as a messianic figure, uh, a savior of mankind. Of course, um, the Antichrist is a little horn. He's a deceiver. In fact, he's the ultimate false messiah that Jesus and the other apostles warned us would come on the world scene 
just before the true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, returned to the earth to establish his kingdom. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's pray we can get the study in. But, uh, you know, 2 Thessalonians 2 is, a, is a, a classic passage about the Antichrist. And, of course, I'm thinking of 1 Thessalonians 5, that when the Antichrist finally uh, is put into power, he's going to bring about a time of peace, prosperity, and the world is going to be convinced they made the right decision. This is our Messiah. This is the guy we've been waiting for. This, you know, our avatar is here. This is the, the Maitreya Buddha, the incarnation of the Christ spirit into the new age. This is the guy. But Paul said, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But initially, they're going to think, oh, this guy is the greatest thing that has ever happened to the world. He's truly a Messiah, a God-like figure. 2 Thessalonians 2, starting with verse 9, the coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Those words in the Greek, uh, signs and wonders, are the same Greek words used of Jesus' miracles. These are real miracles. But why are they called lying miracles? Because they point to a false Christ. You know, we, we talk about the word antichrist. The word anti in our thinking means against. In the Greek, it could mean in place of. This guy isn't against religion. He is going to incorporate a brand new religion, which places him in the position of God, and he demands to be worshipped. He will be the ultimate false Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 24, in the end times, many false prophets and false Christs will arise deceiving many. But there is coming on the scene one ultimate deceiver. He is who, the false Messiah we know as the Antichrist, and he's going to come with real power, uh, which will he'll have the, the ability to do real miracles, but they will point people in a wrong direction. They'll be false. Uh, in how they're pointing people. Uh, they won't be pointing people to the true God, but to a false God. Verse 10, And with all unrighteous deception among who, those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. So who's going to be deceived? All those people who rejected the gospel. All those people who rejected God's truth. They didn't love the truth, didn't want the truth. They're going to be deceived. They didn't want light. They hated the light of God, the truth of God. God's going to send them delusion that they should believe will lie. Verse 12, that they all may be condemned who do not believe the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. All right, that kind of sets up tonight's study. Verse 1 of Daniel 7, we read, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. So we are told that Daniel had this dream in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. Now, as we said a few weeks ago, when we studied chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar died on October 7th, 562 B.C. He was succeeded by his son, Evil Merodach, who reigned two years before being assassinated by his brother-in-law, Nereglisser, in 560. Nereglisser reigned for four years and died of natural causes, and when he did, his young son, Labashi Marduk, was put on the throne, but he only reigned a couple months before he was murdered, uh, by a band of conspirators, which included Nabonidus, who was the son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar. Nabonidus then ascended to the throne in 556 B.C. 
and he reigned until 539, the year that Cyrus, the Persian, conquered Babylon. But as we said a few weeks ago, Nabonidus spent a lot of time away fighting battles. So he appointed his son Belshazzar as co-regent of the city of Babylon and second in the entire kingdom. The year was 556. So according to verse 1 of Daniel 7, that was the year Daniel had this dream. Just to give you a little historical context. Verse 2, Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Now, the term great sea in scripture is most always refers to the Mediterranean. It might be being used here in a more generic sense. We'll talk about that more at the end of the study. All right. But for right now, let's assume that Daniel, when he says great sea, is speaking of the Mediterranean Sea, which could signify that all four empires, uh, that all of these empires uh, all controlled the area around the Mediterranean Sea, which they did because they became one with their kingdom, okay, this area, even though you have Persia to the uh, east and uh, Babylon to, you know, the north. Uh, but the idea was, though, that when these kingdoms took over and they conquered this area, uh, they absorbed all that land, and most of it was around the Mediterranean. So we have then the first beast. Daniel has a dream that contains four beasts. Verse 4, the first beast was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till the wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. So the first beast was like a lion with eagle's wings. Later, in verse 17, we are told that these four beasts are actually four kingdoms that rule over the earth at different points of history. Four kingdoms. We're talking about world empires, not just any kingdoms, world-dominating empires, all right? And the first kingdom is the Babylonian Empire, represented by a lion and an eagle. Now, many see in this, or many see this as a fitting symbol to represent the majesty of the greatness of the Babylonian Empire, especially under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar. Why is that? Well, a lion is considered to be the king of beasts, the eagle, the king of birds. And so this signifies Nebuchadnezzar, who was a leader of leaders, a king of kings uh, in majesty and glory. It parallels really the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream that Daniel gives to him in chapter 2, verses 37 and 8. Remember how Daniel was brought in? God revealed to Daniel what the dream Nebuchadnezzar had, what it was. And then he, after he tells him the dream, he then interprets it. But in chapter 2, verse 37, we, we read, You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. And you remember how we studied chapter 2, what the context was. He had seen this 90-foot polymetallic image. And so each of those parts of that polymetallic image represent a, a world empire, starting with Babylon, who was the head of gold. But my point is that even as the lion is the king of beasts, eagle is the king of birds, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of kings over the kingdoms of the earth in his day. Now, 
Jeremiah, guys, used both the lion and the eagle as pictures of Nebuchadnezzar. And I'll just give you two places. Jeremiah 4, verses 7 and 13. And then Jeremiah 49, verses 19 to 22. And there's other places. I just want you to look those up and get a flavor of what I'm talking about. As far as the uh, lion having wings representing Babylon, they have uncovered what is called the gates of Ishtar. These were found in ancient Babylon. The archaeologists found them. And uh, you will see, if you have to Google it, you will see that on these gates that were on the city of Babylon, that you see lions with wings. Those are in the... um, Berlin Museum. I am told, though, that you can go to the British Museum and also see archaeological finds that relate to Babylon of lions with wings. So the imagery is pretty clear. The statement by Daniel, guys, I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it This is probably a reference to how God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. Remember we studied that in chapter 4? Made him live like a beast out in the field for seven years. We read in chapter 4, verse 33. uh, That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And that took place for seven years as God humbled this man because even though he was impressed with the God of Israel on two different occasions, it's not enough to be impressed with God. You have to be broken in his presence. And God loved Nebuchadnezzar. And God, of course, knew his heart that put under the right pressure, woe unto that man who strives with his maker, you know, you're, you're going to butt heads with God, you're going to lose. You're going to wrestle with God, you're going to lose. And praise God that you do. You wouldn't want to win. Because God's trying to break you that he might build you as a child of God. And ultimately bless you. So Nebuchadnezzar was struck with this. You know, I, I watched till the wings were plucked off. And he was lifted up from the earth. Lifted up from the earth could be a reference to how He was removed from his office as king for seven years, but then finally made to stand upright. God brought his sanity back. Verse 34 of Daniel 4. And at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And I believe chapter 4 contains... Nebuchadnezzar's testimony written in his own hand how he got saved I think we're going to see him in heaven I really do so you can check that out again if you weren't here read chapter 4 all right that's the first piece Daniel says it it was like a lion with wings eagle's wings the second beast verse 5 and suddenly another beast a second like a bear and it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth And they said, thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. So the second beast in Daniel's dream was like a bear. Now, the bear is representative of the Medo-Persian Empire, which defeated Babylon, of course. We saw that in chapter 5. And it parallels the arms uh, arms and chests of silver in the great image as recorded in Daniel chapter 2, verse 39. The image that Nebuchadnezzar had saw in his dream. 
But guys, the Medo-Persian Empire was not as majestic as the Babylonian Empire. Even as Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, when he said in verse 38, You are this head of gold, but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. And he said earlier in verse 32, it was the chest and arms of silver, which we know was the Medo-Persian Empire. And as I said, guys, the second um, beast wasn't as kingly and great as the Babylonian Empire, which was represented by this lion having eagle's wings. A bear is slower, stronger, and more crushing than a lion. And this bear, we are told, had a voracious appetite for conquest. It is told, arise, devour much flesh. One commentator said this, and I quote, the slow-crushing armies of Medo-Persia or the Medo-Persian Empire were well known. They simply overwhelmed their opponents with superior size and strength. Another said, the Medes and the Persians are compared to a bear on account of their cruelty and thirst after blood, a bear being the most voracious and cruel animal. And Ironside said, and I quote, the command to arise and devour much flesh indicates the extreme cruelties often practiced by the Persians and the wide extent of their conquests. That's interesting. You know who invented crucifixion? The Persians. It wasn't the Romans. They took it to an art form. It was the Persians that invented it. Probably one of the cruelest ways to kill somebody ever invented. It was finally outlawed by Rome itself. It was so brutal. The fact that the bear in Daniel's dream was raised up on one side is a reference to how the Persians were stronger than the Medes. They dominated. Even though it was the Medo-Persian Empire, the Persians were stronger than the Medes. In fact, in a later vision as recorded in chapter 8, this time using a ram with two horns to represent the Medo-Persian Empire, the higher horn represents the Persians. You can read about that in Daniel 8, verse 3 and verse 20. Most people think, most commentators think, guys, that the three ribs represent the three greatest military conquests of the Medes and Persians, Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia. And that's what many believe are represented by the three ribs in this bear's mouth. And as one historian said, the armies of Medo, the Medo-Persian Empire did indeed devour much flesh as they marched across the battlefields. Well, we read now about a third beast, verse 6. After this, I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So the third beast was like a leopard. This beast, of course, represents the Greek empire led by Alexander the Great and parallels the stomach and thighs of brass of the great image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. One author made this observation about the three beasts of the three kingdoms thus far in Daniel's dream. He said, and I quote, Each animal is mighty, but dominates his prey in a different way. The lion devours, the bear crushes, and the leopard springs upon its prey. It's fast. And yet this leopard has four wings, like a bird signifying the exceptional speed at which it came at its prey. One historian pointed this out when he said, and I quote, nothing in, his, in the history of the world was equal to the conquest of Alexander who, the Great, who ran through all the countries from Elycrium and the Adriatic Sea to the Indian Ocean and to the River Ganges 
and in 12 years subdued part of Europe and all of Asia. 12 years. He took over, I think, when he was 18 or 19 for his, from his father. And uh, in 12 years, he conquered the entire known world. Now, let's stop for just a second and, and look, think about the prophetic significance of what we've been studying so far. One commentator, and I thought I'd bring this in, commenting on the prophetic nature of Daniel's dream had this to say, and I quote, the Babylonian Empire dominated in Daniel's day. That was the, the, the empire, the Babylonian Empire. One might have guessed, especially in the reign of Belshazzar, that the next empire would be the Medo-Persian Empire. But how could Daniel know that the next world empire would be like a leopard in its rise and prominence, and that it would be divided into four parts? This shows a plain principle. God knows the future and reveals certain details of the future through his prophets. It shows that God lives outside of our time domain and can see the future as well as the past. He sees the whole parade of human history, not just the part passing in front of a single spectator. And let me build on that. Because I think it was Hal Lindsey years ago who made that very analogy. He said, you know, we look at history as if we're watching a parade from ground level. We only see what comes in front of us. But God sees human history as if you're looking at the parade from a helicopter. From that helicopter, you can see the beginning, the middle, and the end happening all at once. This is how God sees human history because he's outside of time. He's outside of time. We're in time. And our time frame is a linear thing. We only see what comes past us. And yet God sees the big picture. That's why God is not guessing when he predicts the future, it drives liberal theologians crazy because chapters like Daniel 7 just give them fits. They have to try to do their best to explain it away. And no, no, no. It was written in the second century after these things happened. Well, it's included in the Septuagint. The translation of the Hebrew Scriptures in the Greek, 270 B.C., book of Daniel was included then. I mean, you just can't get around it. You just, they, they try their best, but you know what? It's obvious that God, in fact, God said in Isaiah 46, I'm going to tell you things before they happen. That when they do happen, you will know that I'm God, and this is my word, because only I know the end from the beginning. Amen. Only I know what's going to happen at the end from the very beginning, because I know all of human history. Now, it is, as we have said earlier in this study a few weeks ago, it is reported that at the age of 30, Alexander the Great sat on the bank of the Euphrates River and wept because there were no more known worlds or kingdoms left to conquer. Conquer the whole known world in 12 years. He was a warrior. There was nothing left to conquer. He's only 30 years old. Are you going to retire? The thing about Alexander, as we pointed this out a few weeks ago, here's the, here's the, here was considered the greatest general in the history of the world. This man could conquer any kingdom. He couldn't conquer himself, though. Remember what it says in the book of Proverbs? The man who conquers his own anger, his own flesh, we'll say, is a stronger man than he who conquers a city. Alexander was a great tactician and strategist, and he conquered everything he put his mind to except his own flesh. After he had no more conquest, no more kingdoms to fight, it says he kind of withdrew and became a partier, got into women. And as we have already talked about, uh, one night 
He stumbled home in the rain after you know, a drunken party. He was drunk, stumbled home in the rain, fell into bed wet, got pneumonia, and died a short time later. Although, to be honest, it's not the only uh, explanation for how he died. Uh, historians have been arguing for centuries exactly what killed Alexander the Great. Uh, some think it might have been malaria or something else. Uh, I've always heard it was the pneumonia story, so I'm sticking with that. doesn't really matter. Okay. <laughs> but after his death, and he died, we do know when he died. Okay, how? We're not sure. We do know when he died. He died on June 13, 323 B.C. at the age of 32. After he died, the kingdom was divided among his four generals. And guys, that's the meaning of the statement in verse 6. The beast, or in other words, this third beast, the leopard, also had four heads. You see, after Alexander died, they divided the kingdom up between his four generals. The regions of Palestine and Egypt went to Ptolemy I. Syria was ruled by Seleucus I. Thrace and Asia Minor were assigned to Lysimachus. And uh, Macedon and Greece were governed by Cassander. Those are the four generals. Now, only two of them went on to really uh, ascend to greatness. They become very important in the last few chapters of the book of Daniel. We'll see that as we go. It was only Seleucus who ruled over Syria and Ptolemy and their descendants, of course. He ruled over Egypt. They're the only ones who rose to real prominence and power. And they're the ones that the Bible focuses in on later on in the book of Daniel because they affected Israel in a very powerful way. So we'll see that when we get there. All right, the fourth beast. Here's where it gets a little tricky. The fourth beast, Daniel 7, verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Apparently, this fourth beast was unlike any beast Daniel had ever seen that he might compare it to. This fourth beast corresponds to the fourth kingdom in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Again, Daniel 2, verse 40, And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron. The fourth kingdom, world empire, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, of course, you had this one polymetallic image, but you had the legs of iron. That represented the Roman Empire. Okay, The fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Guys, with regard to the fourth beast in Daniel's dream, it contained iron that made up its teeth. Even as the image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream had iron in it. However, it wasn't in its teeth, but in its legs that were made of iron. As I just said, this represents the Roman Empire, the fourth world empire after Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. As we said when we studied chapter 2, the Roman Empire was notorious for crushing its enemies, even as iron being the strongest metal of all can crush the others that we have talked about. But Rome, guys, wasn't satisfied to just conquer an area and make it pay tribute to Rome. Rome slaughtered and crushed them so that they would never again, uh, never again even think of rebuilding their nation in opposition against the Roman Empire. So Rome wanted to send a message. 
Now, here's the thing. If a nation capitulated, I mean, or a, or a city, when the Roman juggernaut began to march toward your city and you capitu you surrendered, well, they didn't wipe you out. But if you had the audacity to try to fight against them, wow, then they wanted to make a real example out of you that other cities and nations would not try to fight against the great Roman war machine. And they would crush the life out of They would so destroy uh, an area that the idea was, look, we want to send a message that anyone who messes with us, we're going to so crush you, you'll never be able to regroup. You'll never be able ever again to uh, build up your nation in opposition to the Roman Empire. Now, guys, here's where the two symbols of the fourth kingdom become a little confusing. This is where I'm going to ask you to really think now, okay? Here's where the two symbols, now we're talking about two dreams. One Nebuchadnezzar has, chapter 2. One Daniel has, chapter 7. Nebuchadnezzar sees the kingdoms of the world, world empire, starting with Babylon, all the way down to the Roman empires we've covered so far, right? As a series of metals from gold, uh, silver, bronze, and then iron. Iron legs being uh, Rome. Daniel sees these world empires as a series of voracious beasts, for lion, bear, leopard, right? And now this fourth one, he can't even describe it with regard to an animal. It's something he's never seen before. Exceedingly terrible, strong, and, and so on. The ten toes made up of iron and clay. Listen, now this word, again, it comes a little confusing. The fourth kingdom? All right. Remember how that the two legs of iron then have two feet with ten toes. Okay? The ten toes made up of iron and clay are connected to the two legs of iron in the image in chapter 2. But listen, they are separate kingdoms. The fifth kingdom under the Antichrist will in some way be connected to the fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire. Some have suggested the fifth kingdom will be a resurrection of the fourth kingdom in some way. A revival of the Roman Empire is what I've heard. In the same way, the fourth beast in Daniel's dream has ten horns connected to its head, which has caused commentators to see this beast, listen, as the Antichrist kingdom. See, a lot of, and I know why they do it, and they might be right, I might be wrong, but a lot of commentators try to make this fourth beast in Daniel's dream completely separate. So you've got the lion, Babylon. You've got the bear, Medo-Persia. You've got the leopard, Greece. But then for some reason, Daniel skips over Rome and goes right to the final empire of the Antichrist. Part of the confusion is because this fourth beast is still called the fourth beast or the fourth kingdom in chapter 2, even though it's obviously at one point talking of the Antichrist kingdom, which technically is a fifth world power, starting with Babylon. It becomes the fifth world governing power. I don't see it that way. I believe that both dreams contain the same basic elements to communicate to us the same basic message. Yes, the ten horns are connected to the fourth beast, but that doesn't imply it's the same kingdom any more than the ten toes are connected to the legs of iron in chapter 2, imply that they're talking about the same kingdom. The legs of iron, Rome. The ten toes, something different. A final kingdom, which is not called the fifth 
kingdom or the fifth beast in Daniel 7. But they're so connected, guys, that one comes out of the other that it, it remains under the heading of fourth beast or fourth kingdom. But in reality, it really morphs. There's a couple thousand year gap. You know, and you know how prophecy is. Sometimes there's a short term partial fulfillment, but then a long term ultimate fulfillment. A prime example is Matthew 24, uh, when um, we read, Jesus said, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy, we'll study all this in chapter 9, uh, then flee, right? Well, the original prophecy of the abomination that causes desolation happened under a leader, Syria, okay, the Seleucid dynasty. Remember I said they were, they were very integral in Israel's history? Antiochus Epiphanes, at one point, I'm not going to get into the details because we'll get into it in detail in chapter 9 especially, but he puts, he has a pig killed on the altar of sacrifice in the temple and puts an image of Zeus Olympus in the Holy of Holies which absolutely desecrates the temple, makes it unusable for the worship of God. It's the abomination that causes desolation. That's the term. Well, that was prophesied in Daniel that was going to happen. And yet, there was a short-term partial fulfillment that was uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, but a long-term ultimate fulfillment, which Jesus talks about. Because obviously, he's living after 165 B.C., when Antiochus did this, all right, or 168. And so Jesus is saying there's another abomination of desolation coming. I mean, you know, what Antiochus did, that was a foreshadowing. There's another one coming, another ruler. And we're talking about the Antichrist at this point. So I understand why the commentators get confused. If I can, it sounds kind of haughty that I'm not confused. I might be very confused. I might be wrong, okay? Um, it's just that as I was thinking and praying and meditating on this, trying to fit it all together, I don't see in Daniel 7, you know, these, these uh, animals, starting with Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, leaving Rome out altogether and going all the way to the Antichrist kingdom, which is this vicious, indescribable beast. The one comes out of the other. That's why it's a kingdom like no other kingdom. Because it started back in the Roman Empire days. He's going to lay dormant for 2,000 years and be resurrected. That's why it's, it's unlike any kingdom that has ever come before, right? All right. Um, again, let me just read you my notes. That I probably said this, but I want to make sure. I, I made sure I tried to, you know, formulate these sentences so that they communicated as clearly as possible. Too late for that, Phil. As clearly as possible what I'm trying to say. Now, as, I, as I'm talking about how that, you know, this fourth beast is really a combination of, of Rome, the fourth world empire since Babylon, but we'll have an element where it will give rise to a fifth world kingdom of Antichrist. I have my notes. It's, it may seem uh, that they are one. It seems like that from the, from the, the passage. But I, I believe the fourth kingdom is Rome, while the fifth kingdom, consisting of ten parts, and yet still called the fourth kingdom, if that's not confusing, I don't know what is, is speaking of Antichrist's kingdom, which is separate from the fourth kingdom and yet still connected to it. That will be in power right before this final fifth kingdom, 
Antichrist kingdom will be in power right before Jesus returns to establish his kingdom upon the earth. I'll give you two passages that uh, I pulled out to kind of give uh, support to this. Uh, you can read along with me or just, you know, Daniel 2. And again, it, it revolves around the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, this fourth, the two legs of iron in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and then Daniel, this fourth beast. Daniel 2, verse 40. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Talk about the Roman Empire. Verse 41, Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. What kingdom? It's not talking about Rome anymore. We have morphed into the future about 2,000 years although it seems like it's the same thing. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. This fifth world empire under the Antichrist is going to be like iron in some ways, like Rome, strong, and yet mixed with uh, potter's clay or ceramic clay uh, because it's not really a, a monolithic empire. It's a democracy, a confederacy of ten nations. You know how that goes. Trying to get people to vote on things, ten nations that cover the entire world, the ten regions, uh, obviously is not as strong as one nation deciding what to do in a given situation. That's why it's partly strong, partly weak. Daniel 7, verse 23. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. That's the Roman Empire, as we saw. Verse 24, the ten horns are ten kings, who shall arise, listen, from this kingdom. It sounds to me like what Daniel, and I think it's Gabriel giving Daniel the interpretation at this point in chapter 7. But it sounds like what Gabriel is saying is that out of this fourth kingdom is going to come a fifth kingdom ruled by this little horn. And yet, the language, and we'll talk about this more in a second, the language of this fifth kingdom of the Antichrist is spoken of almost together uh, with the Antichrist. In other words, like they're one, and they are. And I'll show you why in a moment. But again, verse 24, the ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, speaking of the Roman Empire in the last days, shall arise from the Roman Empire. This kingdom shall arise in the last days. Another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones. Yeah, because the ten are nations, whereas this little horn is a leader who will take charge of those nations. And he shall subdue three kings. Verse 25, he shall speak pompous words against the most high well we've gotten a little ahead of ourselves go back to daniel 7 let's look at verse 8 and we're only going to get to verse 8 tonight okay but daniel 7 verse 8 i was considering the horns and there was another horn a little one coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man in a mouth speaking pompous words. It's because he is a man. He's the Antichrist. And he rises out of the ten horns. He comes out of this ten-nation confederacy. 
Uh, it's not that he is a military guy that conquers the world. Initially, because the world has gone through some kind of cataclysmic uh, upheaval, the world is, knows about this guy, obviously, and they want him to take control and bring about a one-world government. Now, at the midpoint of the last seven years, he becomes the leader at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. At the midpoint, somebody tries to take him out, kill him. It looks like he's, he's dead, but he's not. Uh, at that point, the devil enters into him, and he becomes a military tyrant after that point. We read in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. Well, let me go back. Um, again, this little horn is uh, the Antichrist and speaks great pompous words, we're told. The implication being blasphemous words against the God of heaven. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. The Antichrist opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's where he's going. We'll talk about this more as we progress. But uh, originally he comes on the scene like a peacemaker, man of peace. But eventually, not only does he become a military tyrant, his goal is to bring about a one-world religion where he is worshipped as God. So he doesn't really have any kind of uh, self-esteem issues. He feels pretty good about himself. But, but most of the passages that deal with this guy, and, they, it, and the Bible calls him by many names, but the one thing that's almost always the same is his big mouth. He's always seen shooting his mouth off, okay? Revelation 13, 6, Then he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. Now again, Daniel says in verse 8, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them before whom the three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. The Antichrist is going to rise up from the ten nations or ten regions to take control of the fifth and final world governing empire before the Lord Jesus returns. However, after he takes power, he has some kind of a falling out with three of the ten nations, or again, ten regions, and he removes them from power. It says he pulls them up by the roots, signifying they would never again grow back, or in other words, be replaced or restored to power ever again. So that's just something that we, the Bible talks about uh, as far as the uh, Antichrist and these ten uh, horns and so on. But uh, at this point, guys, as we bring this to a close, we need to, at this point to read the first couple of verses of Revelation 13 which speaks of the Antichrist rising to power. Now, John, of course, is relating his vision. Revelation 13, verse 1, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Okay. Uh, he says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. The Greek word for beast here is therion, and it's used here to describe the Antichrist. But uh, this Greek word does not is not used of a domesticated animal. It's only used of a wild, savage, ravenous beast of prey. The beast in Revelation 13, verse 1, as I said earlier, must be understood as representing both a kingdom and a person. If you don't understand it, you'll get thrown. Uh, and the same thing is true with what we're reading about and studying Daniel 7. 
But uh, the Antichrist is so closely connected to this final world empire, it often uses him and the empire interchangeably. The same way Hitler was so closely tied to the Third Reich, it was, you couldn't speak of one without the other. That's the idea. They have come together in such a way that they're, they're completely unified. Again, Revelation 13, 1, Then I stood in the sand of the sea and saw a beast rising up out of the sea. Now, again, this could be a reference to the Mediterranean Sea, signifying that this leader comes from the Mediterranean world, or in other words, from the revived Roman Empire. However, in scriptures, guys, the nations are often likened to the sea. I'll just read you a couple of these. Isaiah 17, verse 12. Woe to the multitude of many people, who make a noise like the roar of the seas, and to the rushing of nations that they, excuse me, that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. So there, uh, the multitude, the nations, people, are likened to the sea. Revelation 17, 5, Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So, and I'm only giving you a couple. The, the Bible often uses the sea generically, uh, symbolically, to represent the nations of the earth. So this world leader will come out of the nations. Could it be the United Nations? I wouldn't doubt that. Wouldn't doubt that at all. All right? I mean, when it talks about him coming out of the seas, and the seas being, uh, the nations being, you know, used the seas to represent them, this guy comes out of the sea, out of the nations. Could it be the United Nations that they choose this leader to govern the one world government? Could be. Again, Revelation 13, verse 1. Then I stood in the sand of the sea, saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having, listen, seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns. Now, this is where it's going to get a little more confusing. Try to follow me. Um... Here we learn that this beast rises, this kingdom and leader, rises up out of the sea, out of the nations, we'll say, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns. Revelation 17 tells us that the seven heads, here in Revelation 13, 1, represent seven mountains. A mountain in the Bible is often used to describe a kingdom. That's very important, okay? Revelation 17 tells us that the seven heads represent seven mountains, which are symbolic of seven world empires running their course under Satan's control. This time we're not starting with Babylon. We're going back to the very beginning. The first world empire was Egypt. After that was Syria. Then Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, and then Rome. That's six, right? Six, but this is talking about a seventh head or mountain or kingdom. Well, the seventh kingdom is a reference to the Antichrist kingdom, which again will be a ten-nation or more probably a ten-region confederacy. You can go online. I don't know if it's accurate. I did. I don't know how truthful it is. But you will find that, um, and they claim, I think the United Nations did this, where they divided up the whole world into ten regions. And we're the first region, Canada, America, Mexico. And then there's other regions, okay? That could be what's in view, that the world is divided up into ten regions, okay? And um, 
The ten horns represent the kings of those ten regions. They don't know what that three. They could, they could be presidents. They could be prime ministers. I don't know what the term is going to be. Kings is just a word that the Bible uses to denote a, a leader over an area. Okay, uh, but uh, the ten horns represent the kings of this ten world of these ten world regions who will rule under the Antichrist. Which is why the crowns are on the horns. The horns represent the leaders of the kings of this ten region confederacy this final world empire and on his horns the ten leaders are crowns well the greek word is diadem that is the crown of a king so that's why the crowns are on the horns because the horns represent the leaders of this ten region confederacy one more time revelation 13 one that i stood in the sand of the sea and saw a beast rising up out of the sea having seven heads ten horns on his horns, ten crowns, and listen, on his heads, a blasphemous name. That's because this final empire is going to be ruled by the Antichrist, who is against the God of heaven and tries to lead people completely away from him that the world might worship the Antichrist. Uh, we'll have more to say about this in the weeks to come, but if you turn to Daniel 11, just to get a flavor of what's coming... Because it talks about this event. Again, this little horn that rules the ten horns or ten regions over, over them, the Antichrist. Daniel 11, verse 36. Then the king, again the Antichrist, shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. <laughs> Who's in control? The Antichrist is going to think he's in control. But we know who's really in control. The God of gods. The Lord of lords. Okay. God has a plan. That plan is going to be fulfilled. The marvel of it is he doesn't force anybody to do anything against their will. He just fits them in to certain places within that plan, knowing how they're going to exercise their free will so that when they do, they are without excuse. And yet God's perfect plan is fulfilled. That's the God we serve. And the Antichrist for a while is going to be the big cheese. He's a big mouth. He's going to be the big cheese too. He's going to speak blasphemies against the God of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women. The God of his fathers indicates that he's probably going to be Jewish. Now, there are those who say the Antichrist is going to be a Gentile. I've always had a problem with the Jewish people accepting a Gentile Messiah. Because they're going to think he's their Messiah, right? But nothing surprises me. Anything is possible. But here it sounds like when it talks about that he doesn't um, regard the God of his fathers, sounds to me like that's a reference to the Jewish people, nor the desire of women. Some believe that that means that uh, he's going to be homosexual. Uh, we'll talk more about that. I'm not sure that's really what's in view here. But uh, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. Revelation 13, verse 2. We'll end with this. Now, the beast which I saw was like, interesting, a leopard 
His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. That's in Revelation 13 too. John lists the three animals in reverse order from how Daniel lists them, doesn't he? Why is that? Well, many believe it's because John is looking backward in time. Daniel's looking forward. So for Daniel, the chronology is Babylon, uh, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. But as John is looking now back history, he sees them in reverse order, leopard, bear, and lion. Notice, though, how John sees the Antichrist kingdom incorporates into it the preceding kingdoms that went before it, indicating that each kingdom continues to exist in some way within the, the succeeding kingdom that, quote-unquote, devoured it. I'll leave you with the words of one commentator who put it this way, and I quote, Like the indescribable fourth beast of Daniel 7, verse 7, which represents the Roman Empire, Antichrist's final empire will be a composite of the empires that preceded it. It will incorporate all the ferocity, viciousness, swiftness, and strength of the other world empires. This powerful empire, unparalleled in human history, will be Satan's last and greatest attempt to stop the reign of Christ. But like all Satan's other attempts to thwart God's purposes, it will ultimately fail, end quote. So we'll look at that now. Uh, we'll pick it up in verse 9, finish the chapter, uh, probably get into chapter 8 next week, okay? But um, sorry if we uh, got a little bit confusing. I'm sorry if I did. Look, here's what Daniel saw in simplicity. He saw, okay, the kingdoms of this earth, the, the major world empires, from his day would be Babylon, again, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and then a final world empire, very terrible, vicious, uh, led by what he describes as a little horn. And during the days of this final kingdom comes Messiah, who brings and ever destroys okay, all the other kingdoms, sets up his own kingdom, which will be a kingdom forever. And that, that's the bottom line. We could have done that in about 35 seconds. But then again, I wouldn't be able to justify you paying me uh, to do these, teach these things. So we'll uh, get into it more next time. And um, may God give us grace. Again, the prophetic nature of these final chapters of Daniel's book, either you're going to believe that God is real and that this is his word or you're going to try and I know you wouldn't but you're, others are going to try to somehow explain it all away twist the facts say it was all written by a scribe not Daniel after the fact in the second century BC you know when all this stuff had already taken place I think it's interesting because we progress into the second half of the book of Daniel notice you can do this this week okay read you know chapter 7 through 12. Notice how many times Daniel says as he's talking, I, Daniel, me, Daniel, okay? It sounds like he's trying, the Holy Spirit speaking through him is trying to counteract this idea that it was not Daniel. It was a scribe in the second century BC. And the Holy Spirit speaking through Daniel goes, no, it's Daniel. No, no, it's me, you know, Daniel, you know, you know, the guy that got taken to, you know what? Everything man does to try to discredit God's word, God already knows about, is already put into his word, a safeguard, something to explain it away, something that gives us the truth of what God really wants to say. So, praise the Lord, right?
Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you, Lord, that you've placed in your word 27% of your Bible, Lord, is prophecy that we might know. This is your word and that you are God. You're not guessing. You know the end from the beginning. You know what's coming. And you've told us what to expect. And we thank you, Lord, because as you have revealed these truths to us, we have built our lives upon your word. And we are absolutely confident that everything is going to happen exactly as you have foretold. And that, Lord, you're coming to establish a kingdom. We are so looking forward to the day when man's rule is over. The corruption, the greed, the tyranny. We are so looking forward to the day when the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the righteous judge of all the earth will establish his throne in Jerusalem, but will reign over the world forever. And we thank you, Lord, that you're the only righteous king, uh, the only king, the only leader that can't be bought off or bribed. You only do what's right. And we thank you, Lord. We look forward to your kingdom. And so even as John the Apostle said, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.